This is Wade's World, where we talk to the most interesting people in the world on KABF 88.3, the voice of the people. You know the story on Wage World. We talk to the most interesting people in the world. And today we're talking to Dr. John Wright, who's written a very interesting book, The Coronavirus Doctor's Diary, Stories from the NHS Frontline. I was uh, fortunate to meet John recently when I was in Bradford, where he is uh, an epidemiologist and runs a number of programs you're going to hear about. So nice to have you on the air. Welcome to Wage World, John. Wade, it's lovely to meet you again, even if it's not in person. Over the airways, it's fantastic. Well, and I, the one thing I didn't say is that you are a veteran uh, of radio. I mean, uh, many of these uh, notes for your diary were actually on BBC, the uh, world-famous radio station. How, how did that work out, John? Well, I do have the face for radio, as people say, Wade. So um, it's something... It's Good line. I'm going to use that, John. Go ahead. I'm, um, no, I'm a big fan of radio, actually. I know podcasts have reinvented um, the, the sort of oral media, but um, they're very, they're very uh, in, informative and, uh, you know, just a sort of quiet way of catching up with things. So, so I've been involved in radio for probably the last 20 years, mostly through the BBC, and they've been working with me on a study that I run called Born in Bradford, which is one of the biggest health research studies in the world, following up. Um, 30,000 Bradfordians from birth through to childhood and now into teenage years and seeing what what causes, what influences the health. But I'm also an infectious disease doctor. Uh, So during the Ebola epidemic a few years ago, um, they asked me to go out and make a series of programs uh, setting up an Ebola treatment center in the middle of Sierra Leone, uh, which I did. And when coronavirus came, when the pandemic started at the start of in spring 2020, suddenly everything was cut off. We were all in lockdown very quickly, and uh, including the media and the BBC and everybody, and so sort of excluded from what was happening in the hospitals. Um, and I dusted off my old uh, BBC recorder and started making a, a series of, I just took it around me on the wards, uh, recording the voices of my colleagues and my patients, Um, what was happening on the front line. And um, it became one of the very unique insights into that, particularly in the first few weeks when people were separated in lockdown, of what it was like on the front line. Well, and obviously people were not, unless you were very ill, you weren't allowed to go into the Bradford Hospital. That's right. It was um, it was it was like a it was like a prison, really. We weren't allowing any visitors in. It became, um, you know, hospitals became amplification centers uh, in many ways, because when you went into them, you're more likely to come across COVID and more likely to be infected. As we've seen in, um, you know, with Ebola and other infectious diseases, Marburg, which is in the news this week in in Ghana, um, where you where you have health centers particularly staff getting infected and then infecting other patients. So, so they, were, they were risky places to be. Well, and many people were actually staying at the hospital uh, or in hotels or whatever in Bradford because they couldn't really, you know, you forget it was only a little more than two years ago, but uh, clearly there was a, wasn't enough PPE. People were concerned for their safety and didn't want to go back home and infect family members who might 
uh, be vulnerable. What a time. Yeah. And, you know, it is it's really important to remember that time because we're already, you know, fortunately, we're all back to fairly normal lives. You know, clinically vulnerable people still aren't. But we're, we're living pretty normal lives. And it's easy to forget that the, that sense of danger. I, I, you know, I remember, you know, nurses and doctors from around the hospital who were, who were sort of forced to work on the COVID wards coming in in tears because they were so scared of this unknown threat. Um, so it was a scary time. And, and, you know, my colleagues would often move out of their family houses to protect their families um, and live in flats or in hospital accommodation just to do that. So the self-sacrifices over those first few months was quite remarkable, um, you know, but from the patients, from the staff and from society generally. You even, uh, you all even set up something you call a wobble room. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it was pretty stressful. So we needed time to to unwind and unstress and and cry sometimes. And so, yeah, the wobble rooms became quite an important part of that sort of um, just somewhere to go to just to de-stress. Well, and there was some weeping involved in wobbling, uh, as they say. So that was probably a, a very smart thing. You know, I hate to get into the weeds, but one of the things that was fascinating to me in reading your book, uh, Dr. Wright, is, you know, the way you all managed to uh, sort of adapt to the crisis in using the, C- the CPAP machines. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, so, you know, this is a new virus. Nobody really knew very much about it. And, and that created a lot of uncertainty. And I know certainly it's worth talking about the uncertainty for a minute, Wade, because, yeah. um, because you know, part of that uncertainty has led to a polarisation uh, in different sections of society. It led to polarisation across researchers and doctors to some degree. You know, should you wear masks? Uh, should you get vaccinated? Should you, what should you do? Should you socially distance? All these different approaches and people people polarized into different camps. But but essentially, you know, particularly in the first few months, we knew very little about this virus. And, and I don't think we were very good at, uh, at, at just recognizing how uncertain we were. So um, it's important to, to understand that. Um, I, I think, uh, I can't remember what your question was, Wade. <laughs> well, if it, when we couldn't get enough ventilators and- Oh yeah, the ventilators. Uh, so, so managed then, to find a workaround yeah. or I guess the yeah, is a hack now and i'm very interested in how that worked out yeah so so we were you know we were forced in suddenly we needed a huge amount of ppe um and um and everybody was burning it burning through it so rapidly we didn't we were running out of it and people turned to creative solutions and uh you know getting schools and you know knitting clubs to start making scrubs and uh, ppe we've got schools making uh, 3D printing our masks for us, uh, you know, the, the, that sort of humanity of everybody rallying around to support supporters in the hospital was quite remarkable. But it also showed the creativity of our staff to, to look to look elsewhere outside our normal supply routes. And, and as, as we got used to the virus, we started testing out different approaches to how we could treat patients. CPAP was one of those. So um, in famously in the UK, we, we, we put less patients or fewer patients on ICU than our European or US colleagues. Um, we have fewer ICU beds. And that was one of the, one of the limitations. Um, but actually, you know, as it turns out, that was probably the right thing to do because um, 
patients going into ICU had a pretty poor outcome. So by managing them upstream, and we used CPAP very early, we were very early adopters of this, we were quite successful in um, looking after patients. But, but that also then moved on to you know, new drugs being part of the recovery trial, which was a, a big a national trial in the UK testing out, showing that, for example, uh, chloroquine, which was being uh, recommended by your president at the time, uh, didn't work. Um, but also showing that things like steroids, dexamethasone, was effective in saving lives. Now, a lot of people know the CPAP machine because uh, it's regularly prescribed to people to take home if they have sleep apnea. Um, and although I've never used it, and I've certainly known a lot of people who have, and you turn it on when you go to sleep and you have it on all night, right? That's right. It just keeps you keeps you breathing. And uh, just that uh, little it, bit it of less oxygen from what I read. That's right. It uses less oxygen and it keeps you breathing. And just that little bit of ventilation support was all that many patients needed. And uh, it turned out to be a real lifesaver. Um, so, some of people, the people even on your staff who had COVID were complaining about how uncomfortable it was and almost wouldn't, wouldn't keep wearing it. And that kind of surprised me since some people sleep with it every night. I, I couldn't follow that. Yeah, so so the the, the home-based CPAP machines tend to be a bit gentler than the hospital CPAP machines. Um, so, uh, you know, wearing a CPAP machine, a hospital CPAP machine, is like sticking your head out of the window in a fast-moving car. Um, and when you've got a bit of respiratory distress where you can't breathe so well, it can be really uncomfortable. And some patients just didn't manage it. And, uh, you know, I described on one of the radio programs, uh, one of my patients who, who ended up dying because she couldn't tolerate CPAP. I mean, that was uh, such a moving story. We're talking to Dr. John Wright, who's based in the Yorkshire area in Brad Bradford, uh, England. And he's written a book, The Coronavirus Doctor's Diary, Stories from the NHS Frontline. But uh, also, we're just talking about COVID and experience. I mean, one of the things that obviously you read it in your book and you say, wow, of course, I wasn't thinking about this, is there's only so much that Bradford Hospital was wired for oxygen. So all of a sudden, the pipes weren't big enough and there was only so much oxygen. You, I mean, that was a infrastructure issue that uh, I don't know as many things as I've read about COVID. I, it hadn't occurred to me, but obviously hospitals everywhere must have faced that same issue. Yeah, yeah, hospitals everywhere did. Uh, we 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 ran out of oxygen, particularly in the early days. We just couldn't keep up because we were putting people on ventilation so much and using oxygen so much that um, firstly we were running out of oxygen supplies, but also the pipes to the wards just weren't big enough. Nobody had anticipated that everybody on a ward would be on oxygen at the same time. So um, that that was pretty scary. So as well as you know, those early days not having enough PPE. Uh, not knowing which treatments to use, running out of oxygen, also not having testing. Uh, we weren't able to right. test patients because we didn't have enough testing capacity. So when I, we, the, the senior medical team, we'd meet every morning and every evening to go through things. So we'll be stuck in a small, unventilated room. And not surprisingly, within about a week of the first cases, one of my colleagues went down with symptoms and uh, we we didn't have enough testing kits to test each other, let alone uh, all our patients, because we were having to restrict it to clinical priorities. So, so well, it's um, a great story in the early days when you all thought you were getting tested and sent it off to a lab and then got bumped off. 
That's right. We weren't important enough. So we all fell sick without knowing whether we'd had COVID or not. You know, you, you think that, uh, you know, there's such a lot of discussion, at least in the U.S., about essential workers, the fact that you all couldn't even get up. I mean, we would love to have an NHS in the U.S., but uh, that was, uh, I mean, sort of a tragic comedy thing. I mean, couldn't yeah, believe yeah, it. Yeah, you yeah. actually got COVID twice. It looks like I, I, I think I've had it three times actually, Wade. I think first wow. time was asymptomatic. Um, second time I had it the day before I was going to get vaccinated. We were one of the first vaccine rolled out of vaccines pretty quickly in the UK. Um, and uh, day before I got the vaccine, I, I started getting symptoms, and um, and uh, I was supposed to see my 90 year old dad that day, and right. test myself, and uh, found I had COVID and isolated. And then I, I got one. I got Omicron more recently as well. So you know, it's, it's an occupational hazard to some degree. Well, and my daughter's been working uh, in uh, managing COVID tested for the Louisiana State Health Department um, over the last year and a half. And on this, the latest variant, she says all of us are going to get it, um, and it's just a matter of time because as each new variant comes in, it may not kill as many people or put as many people in a hospital, but we're all get it. That's not yeah. good news. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. And she's not a doctor. So, you know, is that kind of what we can expect that this is going to be a lifetime situation? Yeah, I mean, viruses are very clever, very cunning. They've lived with us for, you know, since human beings started um, roaming the earth. And they're very good at adapting. And, and to, the trick is for a virus is you need the host. Um, so if, the, if you kill the host too quickly, that's not a good thing. Uh, some viruses like Ebola. Um, are most effective straight after death. And that's quite a clever way because then they get people get handled straight after death and you get infected. For for things like coronaviruses, this is the fifth coronavirus that we, we need to get used to. And most of them, are, you know, we catch in childhood and, and don't cause any problems. And I suspect we'll see that happening in society where it just becomes part of our you know, normal immune reactions as we grow up and we become immune to it. But there'll be other variants that are cleverer. There's so many people being infected and, and uh, so many genetic mutations for this virus that we will see variants that may become more severe. Um, but it's in, in the natural course of most viruses is to become milder so that they spread more effectively. Well, you had hoped originally that uh, having it, I mean, would restore, would create some level of immunity, but that uh, seems to be very short term from what I kind of understand from reading your book. Is that still the view? That's right. I, I was, um, I, I, when I got COVID the second time, the first time being asymptomatic, I, I, I was one of the first people to have got it second time. And, and I didn't, I couldn't believe it. And there was no evidence that anybody else was getting infected. So I, I assumed I must just be uh, a little bit uh, mad. Or, But as time has goes on, clearly everybody's, you know, lots of people are getting it two times, three times, four times, five times. Um, and um, I think that is something that we need to just adjust to. But vaccination, Wade, is the key. That yep. That's the thing that makes it, you know, makes it so much more milder, uh, saves lives, and, and once we once you once we had vaccination, it's all about trying to get us back to normality. And one of the other things that I write about in the book is 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 the 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 damage to the wider society from lockdown. I, I live in a city, Bradford. It's a large uh, post-industrial city in the north of England, uh, multi-ethnic, uh, but with high levels of deprivation. And uh, the, the lockdown really had a tragic effect on families struggling with food security, economic uh, security. 
and and on people's mental health and particularly children and young people's mental health so so while it protected our most vulnerable it caused a great deal of damage to our economy and our to our fragile families and to our young people so that's the balance that we always have to take into account um, and with vaccination you know it's clearly that we need to try and get back to that normality well, I, the other thing that people need to understand about Bradford and the uniqueness of your practice and the hospital is that Bradford has a significant South Asian population, uh, particularly, uh, well, and they were, that population was especially susceptible. Yeah, uh, you know, the, the pandemic really put a, put a floodlight on to the inequalities in society everywhere. In every country, really, because it was the poorest who who got worst hit. So, you know, the thing about infectious diseases is that they they spread where there's lots of people and where there's overcrowding, and that tends to be in inner city, you know, multi generational households, overcrowded households, uh, not in the leafy suburbs where there's lots of space. So it tends to be the poor areas, and in those poor areas, we tend to get more uh, Black and Asian uh, uh, families living, and they tend to be hardest hit. But there are also, you know, there's, there's clearly other things going on. There's structural uh, racist ish issues happening in terms of exposure to the virus. So the people who are going out and delivering our food or uh, cleaning our wards or staffing our hospitals tend to be uh, more from ethnic minority groups, and so they're more exposed. Um, and they're not the ones who are able to um, cope with, you know, being able to work from home or have gardens to play in because they had limited facilities. So they had a, this double disadvantage of, of it, particularly during lockdown, of poor facilities to work in, but also being more exposed occupationally. We're talking to Dr. John Wright, uh, who's written a book, The Coronavirus Doctor's Diary, Stories from the NHS Frontline, and it was also uh, on BBC frequently. One of your close comrades and friends uh, was the leader of a, a mosque in the Islamic community in Bradford. And in the early days, some of the, you know, the funeral services and others were almost super spreader events and he had to close the mosque down. And uh, these, are, these are difficult issues uh, as well, uh, how uh, the lack of ability to gather uh, impacted religious ceremonies. Um, but uh, this was uh, a unique set of problems in Bradford. Yeah, uh, I, in the early days, it was interesting, and I, and I described this in the book and on the podcast, is, um, is how these super-spreading events were so important, whether they were weddings or funerals. But when we tracked down, when we did the contact tracing for the cases we were seeing in hospital, clearly these were gatherings of people. Some illegal, has to be said, uh, but some for you know to, for people who funerals for people who died, and and I also described a really nice case of um, the choir the choir that sang of um, somebody who came back to Bradford in the in December before the virus was recognised from Wuhan, and uh, he was a member of an amateur choir. Right. And, um, he he um, pretty quickly afterwards, within a couple of weeks, this is December before the first case in in China had been identified started coming down with very COVID-like symptoms. And the rest of the choir started coming down with very COVID-like symptoms. And so it's, you know, it's likely the virus has been with us for a, perhaps a longer time. It's, it's interesting to speculate. 
Um, but again, you know, it turned out later that choirs were super spreading events because of the way we sing and project our voices. And because it's a respiratory virus, it was a perfect opportunity to, um, with people all gathered together to, um, to, to spread the virus uh, widely. You and your colleagues uh, uh, recruit a lot of people for clinical tests um, on these kinds of issues. And you, you got several members of the choir as part of uh, one of the tests, I think, didn't you? That's right. We tested them afterwards. We did some of the first T-cell testing that we were able to do, uh, which is a bit ambivalent, actually. So we're never quite sure whether they had it, but uh, we're, we, we like to think they did. Well, using the word like in there is probably <laughs> We, we can be flexible with our science, Wayne. <laughs> yeah, we can. Uh, um, so what do we see for the future? What are we learning now? Obviously, this may be with us. We may be in another wave, it seems, here in the U.S. I was supposed to go to an event last night, and all of a sudden they were masking and PCR testing uh, here in Little Rock. Um, but what do you see that we're learning to prepare for future problems like COVID? Um, I, I think, you know, I think we've learned a lot about inequalities and I think there's something in that we have to do to try and really do something about the structural causes of that. That's my sort of meta uh, uh, learning point here. I think we've learned in the health service very much about how to adapt very flexibly and adaptably to, to turn our hospitals into isolation hospitals. And that may be required in the future where we have to do that again. That was very unusual. I've worked in isolation hospitals um, in Africa for many years, but to do something like that in a, in a Western and industrialized setting is very unusual. We're just not setting. I caught some of your, you know, between the lines slaps at the bureaucracy of the NHS there too, doctor. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Indeed. I don't, yeah. I don't think they're probably reading the books as closely as I was, but <laughs> I saw you didn't miss an opportunity in a couple of places to mention that, uh, being allowed to innovate to meet the crisis was was an important thing. Yeah, Did it help yeah. institutionalize at all. Yeah, and very it was very empowering for staff because we were put in charge of the hospital for the first time and you know able to do everything. So that was very good. It didn't last very long, unfortunately. Well, the, the, the other thing about that was one of the things that might be positive to come out of this. Yeah, I know. We always we kept kept hoping, but <laughs> things revert back. It's like the um. Now, it is like the plane crash, everybody, the plane disaster movie where everybody promises to reach to change their lives. And as soon as the plane lasts, lands, it's back to normal again. Yeah. So, um, so, so in, going back to the virus, I mean, we are going to see new sub variants, uh, sub lineages of, of uh, coronavirus. Um, and we are going to have to adapt and just change it. So, we're going to be more aware, particularly in winter months, about, um, you know, public transport and wearing masks in public places. And I think that, that is part of our new way. But we've also got to get better vaccines. And uh, we're still relying on an old vaccine when the changes to the virus have happened quite rapidly. So we need we need to get what we call polyvalence vaccines that can target the multiple variants uh, of the virus. And they will, they will come and we'll, we'll get better at doing that. The very speed at which this... Uh the vaccines were developed has to indicate something important for the future. Yeah, uh, you know, one of the one of the great um, uh, one of the great successes uh, over the last couple of years has been the power of science and research. You know, to come up with you know to cope with the initial pandemic, but then to come up with effective treatments, and then very rapidly to come up with effective vaccines. And I think that's really you know we we we've infectious diseases had become a bit of a Cinderella specialty. And virology in particular, 
um, in many countries. So I think this has sort of just woken us up a little bit from our stupor and given us more uh, more emphasis about the importance of infection control, about new uh, you know new contagious threats, but also the power of vaccines. This must uh, be something that would be positive in your particular specialty. Yeah, um, yeah, it is. It's it's really important. I think um, it, it, we we also have to balance this with you know we have two pandemics. Um, well, we had two pandemics. So one was coronavirus, but one is also our non-communicable disease, which dominates and kills far more people than coronavirus ever will. You know, the diabetes and the cancer and the heart disease and the mental right. health problems, and 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 that's harder to vaccinate against because it's so complex. Um, but we need also to think about how we get better at doing that, put the same urgency as we put into coronavirus into tackling causes of, of chronic disease. I feel like I'm jumping around a little bit, but there's a lot of discussion about long COVID. Uh, how do people recognize the difference between long COVID and repeated infection? Um, so so well, if repeated infection tends to be uh, acute episodes. So you know you've got a virus and symptoms okay. cough or... Um, uh, chest pain or you know losing your smell of it or, or taste um, whereas long COVID tends to happen can be you know after quite a mild attack sometimes uh, and not necessarily what we what we thought we, we see it we see this deconditioning patients that we see in ICU uh, but we not what we noticed in the long COVID patients is they're often patients who were just treated in the community and they have these these long-term residual problems um, and we think some, you know, it might be microthrombi, microclots in the blood that are causing this. Um, it might be cardiac damage or lung damage from the virus that's caused this. Um, and we're still there's a lot of research going on in this area. It's, you know, there's been we've we sort of got we we talk about post-viral fatigue syndrome, um, and a lot of doctors sort of don't take it very seriously. And I think people have started to think, well, maybe there is this post-viral fatigue syndrome, which is similar to long COVID. Um, and causing these long-term problems, which can be around uh, how your heart works or how your breathing works or how your brain works, you know, this sort of fog that people get with long COVID. But it's clearly debilitating for, you know, for, for a lot of patients. Well, and, and you have to wonder now, uh, the rate for vaccinations on children, for example, have really gone down. I know in the U.S., I don't know about uh, the U.K., um, because of the COVID and people not being in schools, et cetera, et cetera. And there's such contention that you speak to several times in the book. I mean, what do we see in the future there? I mean, is there going to be a way to sort of keep all these balls up in the air? Um, yeah, I, I mean, the people most at risk are the older people. So that was always the priority is to look after older people, most at risk of dying. Um, Children, I, I think it's pretty similar to the UK. Are between five and eleven year olds, I think it's about ten percent being vaccinated in the US, and it's pretty similar in the UK. Higher in some of the European countries, up to twenty percent. But but I think a lot of parents aren't vaccinating their children, and I think there's also quite a strong case to say, well, you know, the children aren't getting symptoms, so just let them get it naturally, as they would with other coronaviruses. Some part of that decision is whether they spread it to older people and grandparents and things like that. So that's part of the equation. But I think a lot of parents are making their own mind up about that. Well, as they, as they should do, really. And they need to get vaccinated for some of the other classic diseases, you know, diphtheria, et cetera, et cetera, the standard rationale. Dr. Wright, uh, this has been a pleasure, but how can people who want to 
read your book, get a hold of it. I know that uh, proceeds go to charity and whatnot, but Coronavirus, Doctor's Diary, Stories from the NHS, Frontline, where can people find it? Yeah, so all, all the profits are going to uh, the Against Malaria Foundation. 500,000 children die in Africa each year from malaria. It's one of those uh, in infectious diseases that we uh, tend to ignore because it doesn't happen in our country so much. Um, so you can buy it on Amazon, uh, Amazon US, Amazon UK, Amazon European countries, um, and also on iTunes. And uh, yeah, I, I go out and buy it. It's all for a good cause. Well, and it's fascinating. And a side uh, advantage is uh, you learn uh, unique expressions that we don't use in the U.S. So I, the wobble room, uh, jumping over the brush, uh, <laughs> one that uh, is, is going to stay with me. Uh, and there are others. And if they want to continue the discussion with you, uh, Dr. Wright, uh, you have a website, I believe. I do, yeah. It's uh, com. Uh, and you, right, universal right, healthcare. Right. Universal healthcare is one of those things I don't think you hear too much about in the US, is it, Wade? Uh, we talk about it all the time. We just don't win it at all. Um, but uh, uh, let's keep this conversation going. I'll look forward to the next time we get to meet in person. Thanks for being with me. This has been Wade's World for another week, the world where the other half lives, where we talk about things you've never heard. And as Lucinda Williams sings, things you've never seen and will never forget. Wage World is underwritten by the Daryl Foundation, a progressive force in Edmund Change based in Little Rock, Arkansas. As the song goes, we say it loud, we say it on the air, we say it on the radio. Until next week, when we'll have another guest. This is Wade Rathke from Wage World. Thank you.